Welcome to the Marshall Pruitt Podcast and your Week in IndyCar Listener Q&A episode part one coming out of a, I don't even know what words to use, a crazy, manic, uh, wacky, tabacky Nashville Music City Grand Prix. Wow. That was a lot, y'all, wasn't it? A lot. So going to get through the first half of a two-part Weekend IndyCar Listener Q&A extravaganza uh, because there's just too many questions. Actual, true, genuine record for the show. Never have we ever had more questions sent in for something following a race. Was it a race? Was it an experiment? I don't know. We're going to get to that. 208 questions according to the fine man who is Jim Kaiser, who kindly puts together the questions for me every week. He stopped counting at 10,000 words. So, uh, again, thank you, Nashville, for, uh, boy, did, uh, did something a little bit rare, and that was instead of just a straight Q&A, as I mentioned in last week's show, going to ask y'all to send in your thoughts, your rants, your raves, your commentary, whatever it was about the Nashville first ever Nashville race on the streets there. And so what Jim has done is despite having 208 questions, maybe not a big surprise, a lot of repetition, a lot of folks asking the same things. So if you don't hear your specific question, on a topic being read, just know that uh, Jim found another one that was pretty darn close or might even have a different shader angle for us to discuss. So no way we're going to get through every single question. Uh, and also some of the comments that were sent in too, many of them very similar. So going to do Q&A first and close the show just simply reading your rants and your raves about the Music City Grand Prix want to say a massive, massive thank you to many of you who sent in really incredibly kind and uh, wonderful, beautiful, heartwarming, spirit-lifting comments after mentioning that uh, my wife is back in the fight to defeat breast cancer. And yeah, just truly, truly know and understand how much you all mean to us and how much the fact that so many of you in this little dumb podcast universe of our own um, take time to reach out and do things, say things, express things that go well beyond IndyCar or motor racing. So truly, thank you. Also, boy, had heard over the weekend that the beloved broadcaster known as Bob Jenkins was in his final days. And so sadly learned today that Bob did indeed pass. Really, boy, I don't know what to say other than it's been a really heavy week for a lot of folks at IndyCar. Uh, from Jimmy Vassar losing his dad to Bob now, Robin Miller obviously sharing um the changing reality in his world and there's more um just tough times hard times would say that for those of you who are 
very emotive and receive such things and they weigh heavily on you absolutely okay to take a step back and say you know what i'm gonna i'm gonna clock out here for a little bit and just breathe and let things get back to normal so it's been uh high emotions for a couple weeks now for sure uh for many of us and i would assume many of you in the sport especially with the knowledge of some folks who are super loved uh passing on and knowing how bob for so many indycar fans he's the guy he is that voice that person who has shepherded you and us through decades of the sport whether it's calling indy 500s or so many of the other things that he did and that's really something that i hope more folks either uh, share insights on or maybe you can go and do a little bit of googling to learn more about what bob did we know him and heavily associate his life and career with the indianapolis motor speedway but as i mentioned uh, on twitter the guy was really a massive massive utility talent seemingly stick him anywhere even if he doesn't really know the depths of the series he's about to call and not only is he going to learn it all but he's going to come across like he's been doing it forever that is such a rare talent to be able to do that to sound studied and masterful while on the inside probably shivering a little bit whether it's formula one or nascar whatever it was throughout so many decades that's what i think of when bob jenkins comes to mind whatever it is wherever it is that guy is going to be a shining example of excellence you don't get too many folks like that in the universe so definitely definitely sad for his loss gonna mention something here and i'm going to try and not mess it up uh i can't guarantee that i'll get it right but so month of may indianapolis 500 a little bit of a change of routine the normal memorabilia show held right behind the pagoda well it changed venues and since i'm an idiot self-avowed idiot uh i tried to send some of y'all to plainfield illinois not uh, plainfield indiana and so the first time i tried to help our friends uh, are the new caretakers of the uh indie memorabilia fests and love and that happens more than just the month of may uh yeah i kind of pooped the bed and i i tried to fix it as quickly as i could but it did go out on the show and i had a lot of people saying um hey moron you're trying to send people to the hometown of dale coin racing uh in illinois there not uh where it's actually being held just not too far outside the indianapolis motor speedway so thankfully i get to tell you and i'm not going to try and send you to illinois although if you want to go to the dale coin shop i'm sure they'll let you they're they're very nice people um there is a new brand new racing memorabilia show this weekend uh more accurately it is being held friday and saturday where is it being held oh i get to tell you accurate information it's right in front of me the delar indycar factory 
1201 North Main Street, Speedway, Indiana. Also known as, is right next to the track, basically. Uh, five bucks to get in. You get to buy a bunch of things. You get to, for some of you who are planning to go to the combo Indy Road Course Race and NASCAR, whatever the heck they're doing there this weekend, you can go to this racing memorabilia show and do your best Marshall Pruitt impression, which is, uh, don't tell your wife how much money you plan on spending and coming home with a zillion pounds of things that make you exceptionally happy, but probably no one else that you know would consider those things to be a worthy investment. So I can't be there. Uh, if I could, I'd, I'd be the most frustrated guy in the world because I don't have a penny to spend. But hopefully y'all do. Uh, it's a great, great thing. Keep this tradition alive so that one day in the future, hopefully, I'll be able to attend and uh, take home some stuff. So until I can do that, I need a favor from y'all to uh, head either Friday or Saturday. Five bucks to get in. Just go support it. It's a huge passion of mine, as you know. And also, if you take a look on the new merchandise page on marshallpruittpodcast.com, you can see that, indeed, I am actually selling more and more of my own memorabilia. Because why? Well, I would love to turn those things back into... uh, into cash because that's the thing that actually has more value to uh, my wife and I these days than me staring at some photo or lanyard or model or whatever. But hey, you can go to a place where it's all about awesome stuff and a lot of great vendors. So I hope you get a chance to go. Uh, trying to think what else I can tell you here. Uh, our man Robin Miller, beautiful to see all the different tributes to him last weekend. Uh, our man Miller was able to file a uh, post-race commentary late, late last night, well past midnight, and definitely a big thanks to his pal, my pal, many folks' friend, Steve Shunk, who was there to help him get that completed and filed. He still has a lot of challenges in front of him, and I just can't express how amazing it is to know that at a time where truly the guy should not be putting a single finger on a single keyboard item um he wants to do this and it fuels him and it's a it's a fire that keeps going inside of him so just really cool to see um little sidebar here before get going with the show Got a call later today while sitting in while sitting in our car, sitting in front of one of my wife's appointments, and it's Tony Cotman, track designer, NZR consulting person who designed the uh, Nashville circuit. And I'm like, all right, well, I mean, I certainly didn't have much that was complimentary to say about the race, but uh, I don't recall writing anything specific about the track yet. Um, but who knows? Maybe I pissed off TC and it's always fun where you see a name pop up on the phone. And you're like, huh, I wonder if I'm about to get the business from this person. So you pick up, you always pick up, you never dodge those calls. Um, and we spent, I don't know, maybe 10 minutes on the phone 
and had nothing to do with the race, the track, or anything else. It's just Colin wanting to uh, talk about Miller and uh, just check in. I thought that was pretty darn cool, where obviously uh, he's seen, read, heard, experienced all the many things we're about to talk about, and a lot of those things non-complimentary. And so rather than burying his head in the sand, uh, declining phone calls, telling the world to leave him alone, um, just sharing here. Separate from whatever we're about to flap some gums on here about the Nashville GP, appreciate Tony Kopman for being such a stand-up guy and really just wanting to talk about his pal Robin. So full, full credit to him. All right, with all that said, uh, more I could share about what's going on at home, but honestly, right now, I just want to get the show going because I know that we have two of them to do this week. So our guest is supposed to be Marcus Erickson. Uh, I don't know if you heard about him. Uh, He's a guy who just won a motor race. And uh, boy, we're going to talk about that too, but uh, that guy did some extraordinary stuff in that race as well, which hasn't gotten enough credit uh, so far. But anyways, Marcus is meant to be our guest. I think that's going to be on Wednesday. I'll confirm that here Tuesday morning, whenever you might be listening to this. And uh, provided that's all a go, we'll put out the call for questions and talk with our man, a two-time IndyCar winner, this year with Chip Ganassi Racing. So, all right, a little bit of music bed, little marker here. Let's get rolling with your Q&A Jim Kaiser, oh, we love you, brother. We uh, we appreciate you, and I apologize. I really never wanted to uh, have you going to the doctor talking about carpal tunnel syndrome, but, yeah, this week might be the one that pushes us, as I struggle to say words with my mouth. Uh, this one might push you over the edge a little bit. So it is currently 926, and... I won't predict how long this episode's going to take, but I'm going to do my best to rock and roll and jam through it. Uh, and my name's Marshall Pruitt. Sorry, I'm kind of a lifelong hip-hop guy, and so rhyming always comes to me. And I know that in my prof- my modern-day profession as a writer and reporter, alliteration is considered a not-good thing and a bad thing and a negative thing and a... When you see alliteration, uh, it's often evidence of a person lacking in talent or whatever. And I'll just share a little insight here that because I've listened to rap music for almost 40 years now, I don't know, whatever the length is, it's just right. It's there. So when I'm writing, my brain is often thinking in I was about to say bars. That sounds that'd be a little too much. But anyways, if you notice some of my writing and you notice that there might be some words that whether it's true alliteration or there's just words that strike similar phonetic tones, if not rhyme, it's not because I'm intentionally trying to. It's because my brain waves are kind of on that older and this is older school hip-hop right because modern day stuff like rhyming's not been a thing for a while but yeah so if you've ever noticed or wondered 
and I don't know why this is coming out of my brain right now, but uh, indeed, uh, I do try and keep alliteration in check. And when I lose that fight, it's often because there's some sort of rhyming convention that plays out as I'm typing, and I just don't want to stop. Uh, we are going to kick it off with our pal, Hrishit Despond. Always appreciate you, Hrishit. We, I need more of you on the show. I'll just say that outright. I know you've got a job. I know you've got an important job in the automotive world. Uh, if you haven't checked out his Twitter handle, at Original Hrishi, H-R-I-S-H-I, and then the letter D, at Original Hrishi D, you might check him out. Interesting character, person with a lot of smart stuff that he sends into the show when he has time. So love it when you do have time, Hrishi. The show's always better with you in it. He says, uh, thoughts and prayers for my wife and I. Mention a lot of you sent in similar notes with your questions. Don't be a, please don't be offended or think that we don't appreciate it. If I don't read all of them throughout the show, cause that might add an extra half hour. If I do, uh, he says how much of Sunday's carnage was due to the track design and restart zones. And how much of it is due to drivers being way too aggressive and making crazy moves. So Hrishi, Thank you for asking that. It is a perfect show opener. And for those of you who are either new to the show or newish to the show, you probably uh, know, here I'm rhyming again, uh, know that we tend to visit a little bit with one main topic, probably the most, one of the most important topics coming out of the week. Do that up front, spend a little while before we get rolling with other stuff. So, yeah, hey, track or drivers, what was the cause of the event being a poop show. (sighs) Hashtag me personally. That's the official hashtag of our show. It's the phrase that I hate most in the world, just about. Uh, Hashtag me personally. This is what comes to mind, Frishi. So we had a car drive into the back of another car. Let me rephrase that. A driver in a car. Driving to the back of another driver in a car. Boom! Uh, tried to go to the moon, came back down, ended up winning the race. Uh, that was a driver who acknowledged he wasn't really, I don't want to say paying attention, but really was not looking far enough ahead to see what was happening. Argument could be made, well, it's a really tight section of the track, having to make a 90-degree turn to uh, then come and uh, take a, a restart so the track's too tight and narrow, and you guess what? No, don't buy. I mean, I don't disagree the track could be wider, but that was a driver in Marcus Erickson slamming into the back of Sebastian Bourdais due to negligence. So driver, not track. Um, hey, we had this thing where other cars went around and around uh we had ed jones hitting and spinning scott mclaughlin yeah a little bit of a, a funnelish type section here coming off the bridge definitely though that was a driver hitting another driver spinning that driver uh that would be a driver fault we can run through a lot of what happened, 
Creasy. And in the case of Will Power, <laughs> going down the inside of his teammate, Simon Paginot, and saying, hey, guess what? Boom, pow, off I go, off you don't go. And hey, look, an 11-car parking lot. Yeah, that was a very, very street course thing. You could see that happen at many street courses that we go to. Definitely a case of, if you subtract willpower making that move, we do not have a red flag for the first time in the race. Um, I don't know exactly where else Simon could have gone to avoid that, but Will forced the issue. He came away unscathed. His teammate did not. Many others did not. Ten more, well, not everybody had contact, but uh, after Simon went into the wall, uh, there are a lot of other cars. Total was 10 stranded behind him. Some of them uh, damaged as well. But that was certainly a, if you don't make that move, that problem doesn't happen. So again, I know it's a tight section of the track, but hey, a lot of people managed to navigate that portion of the track without incident all weekend long. Um, We certainly then had Renus VK making a mistake of his own. We have another yellow that's caused by him, period. Uh, Hey, Will Power again. You've got that teammate you want to try and pass. And, oh, well, that was a low percentage thing and boom pow off you go into the wall teammate and hey dalton kellett don't know exactly what happened with dalton uh there are a number of cars that came through before him that got through just fine he didn't um but that was 100 percent driver induced um just trying to look down the rest here uh hey pato award we're going to try and get past alexander ross okay yeah that's not really working out too well and hey Alexander, you were on pace for a podium, and yet again, the cartoon anvil fell on you. Um, 100% on Pato. Um, hey, Cody Ware. Man, you're, you're doing your darndest. You got as high as eighth, and you just lost it. I mean, he just straight up spun. Uh, no further analysis needed. Nothing deeper happened. He spun tried to do a however many point turn and stalled the thing. There's another yellow. Um, Colton Herta. Hey, uh, he had his Senna 1988 at Monaco moment. Fastest thing on the track. I don't know if he would have won, but he was the, the, the driver of the day and threw it all away. No one's fault, but his own. Uh, we saw crashes earlier in the event, whether it was Connor Daly, Jimmy Johnson, Jimmy Johnson again. Um, I can see where it would be easy to say the track, the track, the track. Without a doubt, there are places that can or should be wider or widened. We do have to remember if we're talking about, say, turn 11, the final corner leading on, basically running, what, parallelish to pit lane uh, in front of the uh, the football stadium where the, uh, the start-finish or 
yeah, start, finish, restart, whatever deal is taking place. Very slow, very slow corner leading on to that. We saw multiple not great things happen either in that corner leading up to the corner. How wide can that be made knowing that we are talking true actual city streets? Like you take away the barriers and you take away all that stuff and you get back to normal life and it's just a functional city street. It's not like it can just be remade to whatever anyone wants at any point in time. That might require some pretty significant city and county approval beforehand. Just mention here, the area that I thought was going to be the super yellow-causing bonehead move-inducing section, uh, what folks kind of referred to as the Baku section, the uh, Azerbaijan, the, the really slow, fiddly complex uh, on the, the Baku Street circuit, that little bit as the cars go across the bridge for the first time, get to turn four, make that left, go up the hill, fumble around a little bit, make another left and another left, and then come back around, take the right to get back onto the bridge and come back to uh, the city, it's the main portion of the city itself. I figured that little remote section, as slow and tight and you name it, was going to be the cause of 90% of the problems. Um, and it wasn't. The one constant or common theme was the uh, what I refer to as the you-should-know-better incidents. And I still have to write about this my racer.com cool-down lap column. Hopefully I'll get that done and out on Tuesday. There's two sections at the Long Beach Grand Prix that I refer to as the you-should-know-better sections. I apologize if I'm forgetting the exact corner numbers um, off the top of my head, but there's the crest the hill, downhill, super wide, hang the right to go down the back straight section. And it's the downhill about to make that right hand where it's super wide, Drivers that are leading and trying to get a faster line through the corner tend to swing all the way to the left and then cut back across to the right and go through that corner. And because it's so wide and so inviting, you seem to get every year one or more drivers, whether it's IndyCar, it could be IMSA, it could be whomever is racing on the docket at the Long Beach Grand Prix. In every series, there's at least one driver, if not more, who say, oh, well, look, it's a wide-open opportunity. And it absolutely is not. And that person dives down the inside, going a little bit slower, and jams himself in near the right side, the, the inner apex, uh, and then get clobbered by the leading driver who's swinging a big arc uh, coming in from a higher rate of speed and way, way far away distance wise. And so it's the no, 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 no. It's the, Hey, there's the big municipal bus about to make a right turn. And it has the big old sticker on the back showing a little picture of the bus turning on a corner and an idiot sticking their car on the inside, thinking they can sneak by. And it's a little boom explosion type looking thing of don't put your car here when the bus is making a, a turn in the city streets because you're going to get crunched. 
it's that thing that happens at that corner. And then the hairpin as well. Every year, it's the you should know better. Every chief steward in every series begs their drivers, look, you're going to come flying around. We know that this big, long straightaway is waiting for you. And if you nail, nail your exit, boy, you're going to pick up a lot of speed and maybe you can pass somebody. But, yeah, hey, you're often going to see the driver in front of you swinging far to the left to cut that nice long arc to get that big run out of the corner, and you think you're going to be the passer of the day by going down the inside and failing to realize that, no, you're about to get clobbered, slash you're about to clobber the person cutting that big wide arc, and boom, you're that idiot who went down the inside of the bus. And now look at the two of you. Two sections at Long Beach like that. At Nashville, I th- I'm going to look at the uh, the circuit map again, but I think there's like four of those. There's four you should know better. And so what did we get primarily? It was turn four. Going over the bridge for the first time on the lap. Zoom, zoom, zoom. Someone ducks down the inside. That driver on the outside swinging that wider arc, coming across, doing what they've committed to do, and it's the person who tries to go down the inside and realizes, oh, it's not on, tries to back out. Alexander Rossi, you're spun. Scott McLaughlin, you're spun, and so on and so on. And then going back across the bridge, what is it, into turn nine, I think it was? Coming off the bridge, same thing crazy wide like the widest thing we've just about ever seen and you get the willpower on his teammate where you go dude for real and we had some of those we didn't have as many as i thought but there's two other sections here as well which have the you should know better do not go down the inside it's going to end badly for the two of you That's the part, Rishi, where I can't blame the track because in a couple of instances, we're talking about serious width, whether it's three cars, maybe four, or five to ten cars wide. You can't blame the track when drivers are doing the you should know better, but you did it anyways. Yellow flag. Hey, it's a party, y'all. Oh, boy. So... Yes, Uh, consulted with some drivers, not a lot. Most of them are really tired and worn out today, but some drivers, some engineers today. Again, same thing, not many, but some. And they've got some pretty good ideas on how they'd like to see a lot of things changed. Can't argue too much about rethinking where start-finish is held, right? Is this little fiddly complex, is that really it? If we can start the race halfway across or start and restart the race halfway across the return side of the bridge what if we start it restart it on the going across for the first time uh portion of the bridge i know it's not as wide once you get to turn four a lot of folks recommended hey maybe let it go a little longer give folks a straighter braking opportunity maybe things would be a little bit less messy 
So could that be reconfigured a little bit? Maybe, hopefully. But, yeah, big takeaway for me here, bad behavior, Rishi. Bad behavior. You should know better. Oh, you should know. Oh, again, over and over again. It's the temptation, right? That's the hard part. It's always the hard part on street courses. The temptation. It's so hard to pass. Wherever we go, Detroit, Long Beach, Toronto, you name it. It's so hard. Ah, right? Turn three at Toronto. Think about that, right? How many times do we see the person, I'm going to pass everybody. I'm going to go down the inside. No one's ever thought of that. And boom, bang, pow, wipe out one, two, three, whomever, plus themselves because... It's the temptation part, Harishi, and I don't know what you do about that. How does a track designer contemplate and alter their work on human tendencies, right? Because this is what we're talking about. The places where the most mayhem happened, if I'm just talking by the numbers over and over again, yeah, it's, it's temptation, and that's, that's, you have to take it into account. It's at every street course, every street course. Again, I'm forgetting, forgetting the number. Maybe it's turn three, I think, at, at Detroit at the end of the first long straight after they pass start finish. They do the right, they do the left, make a little jump over the little bridge, fire down that long straight, and then it's a, effectively, what, a 90-degree, 75-degree right-hand turn? doesn't always happen but often you get somebody going yep same thing i mean that's maybe that maybe be a fun article to put together the uh high temptation you should know better street race corners because they're at every street course and this is just the norm so despite everybody in race control asking the drivers to not do these things in those sections and their team owners and their strategists and their whatever said please don't send it down in here unless you got the pass done before you even get to the braking zone please it happens it'll keep happening when we get to long beach it's gonna happen i mean i guarantee you it always happens so where do we go from here well, uh, our man Cotman, our friends at IndyCar, uh, I think there's going to be a lot of feedback uh, being received on how to improve things. And, you know, I need to take a quick look at some of the, uh, some of the questions coming up here because there's a kind of a key thing I want to share or a little key note. Um, maybe, uh, maybe I'll just mention it here. Um, the race was a poop show, total poop show. And I wrote about it. Others have written about it. Robin wrote about it like, right as a race, boy, that was a stinker. These things are being said and being written by hardcore fans, hardcore, heavily invested folks right we who live and breathe this 
stuff. It's very different from someone showing up for the first time to either watch a motor race or an IndyCar race, whatever it might be. We're going to hear later from those who have very positive things to say about the event. I just want to make a little note that my thoughts and opinions about it being a poop show and others saying that, whatever, not from a desire to rain negativity on the event. It's not lacking context of, hey, it was the first time, there are going to be some wrinkles to work out. Eh, those things don't really don't really fly. Uh, this race has been in motion for a long time. There's a lot of things that could be done better, and I'm sure will be done better. But just note that those like myself who are who have many critical things to say, they're not being said to just for the effect or for fun or otherwise. It's because this is what we do. Um, we think in larger historical context of where this race fits in in a 16 race championship this year, where it fits in the timeline of many other events. There's a bit of neutrality applied to. I think a lot of a lot that you might have read so far or heard on whatever show or podcast you name it uh, that that's criticizing. There's a bit of neutrality to it. Uh, while there's a lot of cheer and rah 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 about the event and it's going to be huge and great and all those kinds of things, just sharing. Um, try to weed all that stuff out and call it for what it is in isolation. That being said, there's a lot of folks who had a lot of fun and who might not have been nearly as clued into all the mayhem and all the everything that made the race itself ugh, a little bit hard to watch. But if you're there with friends, and whether it's the food or the drink or the music or just friendship and camaraderie and the sights and sounds of the cars and whatever, 100% possible, because it happened, for a lot of folks go away happy and say, hey, I had a great time, and you go, cool. That's what we hope for. Um, hopefully you didn't get too dug into the race because, yeah, that might have been a little rough, but just hope that a lot of folks come back and have something that is a little more competitive. Um, the excitement of actual wheel-to-wheel competition, largely unbroken by pauses and such, that's what we hope for. It was really cool to see a lot of people left feeling like it was worth coming back to. So, all right, let's get to one of my favorite things in the world. That is someone who's sending in a question for the first time. Uh, that would be from Reddit, uh, Town Dirtball. I love Reddit screen names. There's always a story behind it. I never get the story, by the way. Uh, but Town Dirtball uh, says, hey, Marshall, long-time listener and first time asking a question. Says, there were a lot of complaints about the track layout, specifically some sections were incredibly tight being that the track is limited to city approval how likely is it uh, that we may see changes implemented for next year to help open up the track i would set expectations i don't know if i should say low or in a, a modest area and that's because do i think the city will work with the promoters absolutely i also think there's only so much that can be done without a pretty heavy rewrite. 
I did find last night one of the original concepts for what the track could be, and it's a thousand percent different than what it is right now. So I do expect for there to be some changes to the layout. What I don't know, and again, we're barely beyond 24 hours of the race uh, event having its checkered flag thrown. What I don't know is whether the promoters are motivated and desire significant changes. Hey, can we go over here? Can we make a right instead of a left and use this section? And I don't know how adventurous they want to be. And I don't know how much the city is open or willing to accommodate. I'm not saying like they wouldn't. I'm just saying, I don't know. Um, I would guess the financial impact, once those numbers are fully received, will be favorable. I would think the city would say, yeah, we are definitely a destination town, known nationwide. If there's something we can do that won't massively interrupt people's lives, impact businesses in a negative way by allowing the track to go here uh, where it didn't in the first year, I'd hope they'd be open to it, but I don't have a read on it yet just because not a lot of time has passed. So Cotman's really good at what he does. There's been a ton of criticism of him. He's a friend. I realize that, but look, I've, you know, call out whatever it is, uh, whatever I think about it. He's very good at what he does. He's also not someone who's given a total green light to say, dear sir, create whatever street circuit you wish, and we will just do our best to live with it. The layout that they have is the one that they were able to get done. I think that there is a benefit here for sure of things not being a glowing success from a race quality standpoint. If there were things, and I'll ask Tony about it when I get a chance, if there are things that he wanted to do, hey, uh, we got to make a turn here. I really want to go up two more blocks before we make that turn, but weren't able to this time. I'm thinking he might have the ammunition from the city's board of supervisors and mayor and whomever else who probably saw the race and probably thought, oh, even if I don't know a lot about this stuff, it sure seems like we're down a lot instead of up and racing a lot. I am got to believe that there's some some credit that Tony has in his pocket to uh, to use and get some changes done. I also know for sure that he will be receiving, if not having received, a lot of feedback from IndyCar, uh, from teams and drivers, and I'm going to park this, since this is kind of closing the track layout stuff, and again, thanks for all who sent in questions nearly identical to Hrishi's and Chi-Town Dirtballs. What's the main takeaway from those who took part in the event, they want it to succeed. The positives outweighed the negatives by a wide margin. Again, we know the part that needs to be fixed, the actual race itself. But overall, I can't think of anyone who said, we should never come back. This is garbage. 
terrible, whatever. Everybody wants this to be a success. And knowing that, that's the confidence that I have. So despite whatever our additional things we're going to talk about here about the race and quality and why this and that and the other, you have a united paddock that said this was awesome for the sport, for our sponsors, for our everybody's whatever we need to do to improve it for next year and beyond, we are all in. This means a ton to us. Would hope and believe that those on the city side will be receptive to that and wanting to take their lead to fix as much as they can from a track layout standpoint. Um, See what we can get a psychologist to uh, drive the track and rate each corner uh, on a scale of 1 to 10 for temptation and explain the human psyche and why people do things they know they shouldn't but still do. Um, Going to get it figured out. So, again, one race out of 16, uh, a lot of storm in a tea teacups. Sorry, my mouth not work good. Uh, by the way, for those who are new listeners, I don't edit any of my mistakes out. I refer to the show as my unpolished turd. I leave all the mistakes in. I'm not interested in trying to sound great and polished and perfect because for those who know me, I am so far from any of those things. So you just get the real me and the real mistakes. So I'm not saying enjoy them, but uh, yeah, those are free, by the way. Um, this is something that everybody wants. I'm guessing when we come back next year, and hopefully I can be there for it, um, we're going to have a lot less. I think next year's show, should I put money on this? What? 208 questions this year. I'm guessing next year's post race week in IndyCar listener Q and a show. I bet we cut that in half. No more than 104 questions. And even that would be a lot. So it's going to get fixed. Uh, Ryan Terpstra, our pal. So Scott McLaughlin, code brown moment of the year. He says the transition off the bridge into turn four seems like it destroyed Jimmy Johnson's car in warm-up. Is there any talk about improving that bump on the track for safety reasons next year? Yeah, so this is that hard thing of, I believe that was whatever you call it, the intersection between two portions of the bridge. I don't know how much of a quote bump that was as just that union or junction gap between the two. Can I say that I wasn't surprised that Jimmy was the guy who crashed there? Uh, His line through there looked a little different than some of the others. And I'm not saying that I'm right, but looking at him coming in, I know that he said the car bottomed, might have been low tire pressures or whatever else, but uh, it wasn't a great weekend for Jimmy, was it? Um, Yeah, I know that there was that amazing save by McLaughlin. Definitely the Code Brown moment of the year. He earns, he deserves some sort of award. Uh, The Huggies Diaper Award goes to Scott McLaughlin. Just trying to take this out of the specifics and look at it from a wider angle. A lot of drivers who had some sideways-ish moments there held on to it, though. Um, 
Scotty as well. I don't know how he did, but he did. Um, I don't take Jimmy's crash as evidence that, oh my goodness, uh, something has to be done. We saw that while it was a huge challenge, drivers had to lift and artfully place their car here, but not there to avoid this bump and that bump and uh, get some kind of porpoising undulations going. Uh, if you ran over a sequence of bumps leading into that exact section that was causing problems coming off the bridge towards turn four. Um, but I just don't look at Jimmy's crash as the, oh, I look at that in isolation, that that was Jimmy crashing. Um, while there were some other, holy cow, how'd you hold on to it type moments, everybody adjusted and got through there. And if you think about 27 cars doing that per lap across 80 laps, uh, and I know Jimmy's crash took place in the warm-up, so I'm not pointing that to him in the race, but if you think about the sheer numbers of that happening, 27 times this lap, 27 times that lap, um, through practice, through qualifying, it can be done. We know that because it was done. So can they? I don't know what they do. That was actually probably the number one piece of feedback that I got from those that I spoke with today. Yeah, boy, the bumps, sure, the ones that are just on, call it normal tarmac, yeah, let's try and grind that down. I know that they tried to grind some stuff down on the bridge, um, but the main problem-causing stuff, I think, is in the joints between bridge sections, and I just don't know what you do there, and that's the feedback that I got, uh, the number one piece of feedback of, if we could fix that, like we'd be so happy. How do you fix that? So great questions for uh, engineers, uh, structural engineers, and is there such thing as a bridge engineer? I don't know. Uh, hmm. I'm guessing this is something where a lot of thought would be placed leading into next year's race. Would also overstate the obvious that I think that a lot of thought was put into that before the race and at least there's more time to keep thinking and see if there are any things they can come up with why don't we go to as i take a sip of coffee which i really shouldn't be doing but it's 10 2 p.m pit lane boy we got a lot of questions about pit lane so got three here ryan terpster you're back again uh three questions here that represent many sent in on the subject uh vinnie taibi you open this up says, hey, Marshall, how did the pit lane mishap with Colton Herta and an impeded pace car happen? And how does IndyCar move forward so that the situation doesn't happen again? Uh, Ryan, you mentioned uh, Pato was the only car, maybe there was one other, to pit under one of the yellows. Uh, he says, he, well, there are a lot of cars that pitted during yellows, but okay. Uh, he pitted in sixth, came out ninth. We saw what happened with Herta early in the race as well, coming out fourth. Says I understand with the position of VK's stuck car with a pace car, uh, it would have to slow. But what is IndyCar expected to do about this? So if there's a number two item that came in in terms of feedback, it was, yeah, we need to figure out this whole pit lane uh, time not loss taking place. The what? <laughs> right? If you heard on the broadcast when uh, when Colton pitted, what was it? His last stop i think i I apologize or next to last whatever it was that oh man 
oh, he's in rough shape. He's going to fall back to, you know, 20th place while, you know, coming in in the lead. He's going to come out, tail into the field, and he's fourth. He's arguing over the radio that he should be first. Like, what? Yeah. So with VK's car obviously stricken, um, also with, I would say, that complex there, turn more 10 and 11 headed back to the uh, uh, start finish line or the restart line. I don't even know what the hell to call this anymore uh, where they wave the flag. Uh, And then that stupid little chicane uh, where Renus had his incident. Um, That's not a section where I would think any pace car driver would be just going balls out crazy fast blasting down the longer straights sure there aren't a lot of corners at the track that you could say can be taken in mid gear to high gear right so uh, you have this weird dynamic of pit lane not being super long uh the cars falling behind the pace car actually i think going you know a longer route to get back to where the end of pit lane blends back onto the track and so with the pace car not exactly able to be you know going a million miles an hour in these tight ish sections under a caution and with the car known to be up ahead uh stuck in place yeah uh we had the absence of significant position loss totally defied what everyone thought was going to happen and (laughs) I'll mention just quickly, I did have a a, a cheeky thought of, in hindsight, if they were, well, if we were to go back next year and they were to make no changes to that area, no changes to the track, no changes to the pit complex, if you were like fourth and the pits are open and no one else is wanting to pit, everyone's for whatever reason, maybe everyone pitted recently and there's no reason to like, would you tell your driver to pit to just drive through pit lane and come out possibly in front of the pace car and lap the field? I, again, I don't know. Again, I mean, rules wise, they wouldn't let that happen, but as it is right now, it did occur to me that, you know, depending on the scenario where it would be feasible to tell a driver to enter pit lane drive straight on through and then head out under caution uh it could be very possible to pull a uh, uncle bobby back at indy 40 years ago and uh blend your way to a significant increase in positions so that's something for indycar to think about for sure now if they were to not change the track layout not change pit lane do you go to a special pit lane speed and say, okay, 12 miles an hour? <laughs> you could, in theory, ghost ride your whip. Uh, you could jump out and run faster than your car, jump back in and drive off. Uh, I don't know. But the, hey, wow, pit lane could be a true advantage. Uh, under caution again depending on scenarios this could really get you either some new positions you didn't have or if you got hung out and you should have pitted but you didn't you can pit and still really not lose much of anything 
I just wonder, in the absence of significant changes, would they say, well, then we're just going to slow you way the heck down, everybody. So you are indeed uh, never going to have a chance of gaining positions or effectively losing no positions just because you hit pit lane. So very weird with what happened with VK. Uh, Well, what happened with VK wasn't weird, but just the net effect and how this played out with uh, pit stops and order pit order and track order and who belongs where is there a third thing that stood out number three on the thing to change for next year from the feedback i got it was get rid of that stupid little chicane thing it does nothing for anybody um and look could this happen again next year sure someone knows zin pit lane sequence again like this thing could play out again so uh, part of me wonders if they're just going to try and nix that uh, wacky little chicane so that um, we don't have this kind of bottling up in pit lane, pit positive scenario uh, for drivers. So, yeah, weird. Uh, I'll ask this question, IndyCar, uh, as soon as I get a chance. Um, JJ Gertler, our pal, says, simple way to fix a pit lane being faster than the track is to put a Bojangles drive through at pit out. Every driver has to order and receive a five-piece with a drink before proceeding. I should have just read that at the beginning and been done with it because JJ, as usual, has this whole thing figured out. Uh, Mitch Cooper, you say, what caused the water coming across the track? Don't know. Haven't had time to ask. I read somewhere it might have been coming from a uh, some sort of little party hospitality thing but i could be totally wrong i don't know and i don't know if i'm going to know um but yeah that didn't it fit wasn't that perfect all we were missing was locusts descending upon the track or frogs falling from the sky like we had everything uh oh, we had everything and that sure seemed to fit the uh the craziness of the day sean lee said i had a question about costumes two really that's an interesting phrase i'm gonna drink some water here and get ready to answer hopefully when simon pagino and willpower came together it was jockeying behind them to get refired and move ahead in position does the yellow and then red not freeze the field also are there rules or regulations in regard to pace car speed how fast uh, can you go getting to the pits or maybe catch up to the pace car under yellows uh yes on speed and again they try and maintain constant speed but street course that's you know not always possible uh when we talk about a red yes it's meant to freeze the field share this little insight that might be of value maybe it isn't there's no such thing as a red flag procedure there is each sanctioning body's interpretation creative interpretation of what a red flag is and how that affects the field i remember that when i went through scca club racing drivers school the instructions were very clear and we actually did this as a simulation red flag means stop where you are like truly red flag came out 
cars stopped on track wherever they were. There was a second version of the red flag training that they had us do, which was red flag means return to pit lane and park. That's something that, again, is fairly common that we'll see in most racing series. But I do recall vividly the, seriously, you want us like just to stop and wait for instructions on to re- resume? And was the reason given was, hey, you can't always just drive back to pit lane and park. There could be huge track blockage. There could be massive fire. A bridge, a track crossing bridge could have fallen down. It's happened before, sadly. Blocked the track. Hey, we're not going any far. You stop here. There's something up ahead that won't allow you to get back to pit lane. Uh, so a variety of options here. Then you get the, well, how do you sort and order the vehicles? That is the thing that tends to take the most time. Once the problem is cleared up, it's the race officials going back and looking at transponder data, looking at video, uh, speaking with the corner workers. Some of them take copious notes of who was where and what happened and how. And right, we saw what was it, Hunter Ray, when we're talking about the 11 car uh, little street party there. I think Hunter Ray was able to pull away. He was left side inside apex there and he was the person who uh, was effectively the the stopper in the uh, in the bathtub there and once he was able to pull away we saw some others do that connor daly for example some other cars were stalled some had been wrecked a little bit so not everybody was able to get going again uh and then just return to pit lane there was quite a few refires that had to happen with the AMR safety team and some damaged cars and blah, blah, blah. That's the interesting part here, Sean, of, okay, well, we saw the overhead footage of all the cars kind of frozen in place, but then a couple were able to get going again. And so, okay, uh, and I'll admit I don't remember if we were red at that point. I know that we were yellow for sure. I'm just struggling to recall exactly um, when Hunter Ray got moving where we were in terms of, was it red yet or not? But so then you get often a little bit of movement, some folks moving around. Well, do they get to take those positions? Um, right. And, and get rocking and rolling. Uh, I, I seem to recall in car footage, I think of Santino Ferrucci when the pileup was starting to happen and he was able to sneak through and I think picked up a bunch of positions so hey fair play um it's always a little bit weird to try and figure out the well technically of the 11 cars it looks like you were seventh in line but you were able to get going or you know you were able to roll down the hill a little bit farther uh, a minute later and technically you would be ordered fifth but do you get that fifth because we're under red and you really shouldn't like that's the whole argument thing. Why was I put here? I should be there. And the amount of folks complaining about that yesterday, oh, there was a lot. And some people are pretty heated. But I got to roll out our pal Juan Montoya and my favorite saying of his, it is what it is. Hey, that rhymed too. 
Uh, hey, ST4TCH, Stforch, Stforch, I don't know, from Reddit. It's yet another screen name, Stforch. Hey, Marshall, new to the podcast and to asking questions. Well, thank you for doing that. It says, have you heard anything from fans in Nashville, either by asking yourself or hearing from sources how they thought the race went? Because obviously the TV crew and the drivers are going to say one thing, but I'm interested and how it was for the fans in the hot, humid day during the race, especially newcomers. Have heard from uh, a number, some of them who are listening to the show right now and were keeping me tuned in to lots of stuff happening as they saw it, and some others who held viewing parties, for example, might not have been there on site, but uh, got some friends together to say, hey, this Nashville thing, it's a big deal, and you really got to come watch this with me. And mixed bag so things were pretty expensive from buying food to buying water and you know any of the other you know real drinks certainly not going to be cheap uh logistically these are all again things that fall in the all right you learned it hopefully you improve upon it for next year some of the vendors uh, including our own pals at torontomotorsports.com um I don't know if they were placed in the best line of foot traffic. Uh, obviously, there was the big deal about the uh, what grandstand number six that did not get built until Sunday. And uh, in my little cooldown lap, I'll, I'm including the note to ticket buyers from the track that they sent me. That was not great. Vendor, the the people in charge of, I guess I don't know if they own the the grandstands or whatever it is, but the folks putting up the grandstands, there was a failure there. Uh, had seen that there was a need to bring in um, materials and whatnot from out of state to get things done. Uh, I believe it was a, a sit-wherever-you-want kind of deal for the most part, Friday and Saturday, but Sunday was certainly a this-is-your-grandstand-this-is-where-you-sit type deal. They did get it together for that, but I do know that I heard feedback from, say, person in a wheelchair who and keep in mind that not every grandstand was wheelchair accessible uh specifically bought tickets to be in that grandstand and there was an elevator there too um to to facilitate getting someone in a wheelchair up um was told that that person and their group uh had to go quite a ways away in million degree heat to go and find something that would allow them to uh, watch as they intended and as they paid for. So, you know, if you went in with high expectations, you might have walked away not feeling like everything was awesome. I also think that for a lot of folks, they really found ways to enjoy themselves and might not have been particularly bothered by some of the shortcomings that race fans who are accustomed to going to name the place uh, might have felt some things did not live up to expectations. But in general, uh, there were definitely some, yeah, I don't think I'm going back, or yeah, I'm I'm probably not going to bother watching that again next year. It's inevitable. The majority, though, seemed to be positive 
even if they had negatives to offer, um, going back to what I said a little bit earlier about the teams, the series, and you name it, the desire for this to be a success, a true success on every level, is so high that I think, like uh, a number of fans that I've heard from who were there, their willingness to overlook the shortcomings exists because they want this to be a a real winner that lives for a long time. Uh, Let's see. Our pal Carlos Villalobos says, how would you rate Oriole Servia's driving yesterday? You know, a lot of folks hailed race winner Marcus Erickson for his fuel-saving capabilities. No one is hailing Servia for his amazing fuel conservation to do the whole race without that beautiful Corvette C8 uh, from running out of fuel. So, yeah, uh, and that was actually a kind of a fun thing, too, in all seriousness, Carlos, was some uh, some fans mentioned, uh, wrote to me and mentioned that, yeah, uh, they didn't know who was driving the pace car, and it looked a little sketchy at times, like whomever was driving it was throwing it way in, uh, coming back across the bridge into turn nine, and like, whoa, uh, that, that looked dangerous. Then came to learn that, oh, it's an IndyCar driver. Oriel Servian was like, oh, that was actually cool. That guy was wheeling the heck out of the thing. So what would you expect? Uh, let's see. Ed Joris. Let me take another sip of water here. Forget the race itself for a moment. Does the fact that Honda teams seem to dominate practice and qualifying reflect <coughs> on the accuracy of HPD's simulation? It says, does this indicate HPD is winning the sim arms race to the benefit of their teams that develop setups based on hpd sims says this could explain how almost all the hondas rolled off the trucks quote in the window at nashville penske on the other hand seemed lost from the beginning Uh, keep in mind that yes honda's big 97 axis driver in the loop simulator it's amazing uh, there are many of these. So Chevy has one. Uh, Delara has one. Run down the Again, a lot of folks have. So they cost a lot. They're very valuable. They help a team to get tuned up, uh, drivers to get tuned up more than anything, get familiar with a brand new track. Also, they certainly work on the driver in the loop part. That is the using the simulator to test virtual things but things that give truly accurate feedback as to uh, how they would perform and that allows teams both for chevy and honda to show up and know that uh maybe we don't need to go to this spring package or uh maybe this suspension geometry isn't the way to go uh would say engine characteristic wise ed Hondas are known to be really good on low-end grunt and acceleration. Certainly befits um, street course racing for sure. Not like they've won every street course race. Just saying that characteristically, uh, I always expect the Hondas to be pretty darn strong uh, when there's a lot of stop-start type stuff that we find at a street course. Don't know if I would pin this down to one manufacturer's sim versus the other. I would say for sure there's nothing negative that can be drawn. 
on the HPD side here, and that being a boon or benefit uh, to those who are able to use it. But keep in mind, not every team was sitting in uh, the Honda simulator doing all their testing and and what, virtual testing and whatnot and leaving there with super brilliant setups. Uh, teams do their own work, obviously. Um, you think about teams putting in their own simulation work. Uh, you think of the suspension testing that they do, uh, the damper testing that they do, there's just a lot of work on the team side to get them truly ready and awesome to participate at a place like Nashville. So I didn't look at this so much as a Chevy failure or Chevy lack uh, based on simulation, et cetera, et cetera, and Honda being truly ahead. Uh, Andretti Autosport was on a different level they didn't end up winning but we did see that that was the team to beat know that graham rahal certainly did his usual charge forward uh again there's a lot of wackiness in the race that took place he ended up fifth which is great um ed jones drove his behind off you know there's a lot of really positive things that happened in the race uh for some honda teams but there's so many wild cards, Ed, where I go, hey, Ed Jones, you qualified 26th. Graham, you qualified 13th on raw speed, raw pace, right? Uh, just let's see what you got. Obviously, Hondas did very well in qualifying. No argument there, but some of the team slash drivers who finished very well in the race were super nowhere on Saturday. And so and by and large on Friday as well. So it kind of pokes a couple holes in the theory that there was a big Honda Sim advantage that filtered throughout the entire uh, Honda camp. Uh, Let's see, where do we go next? (laughs) This is great. So old pal, been on his show many times, and I wish we still had him on a TV show known as Wind Tunnel. Got a question coming in from freaking Dave to Spain. Oh, I love Dave. I always love being on Wind Tunnel with him. It was so much fun. He says, all right, there's a podcast project. List all the U.S. cities whose street races are long-term economic and artistic success stories. Now list all the cities that have tried to duplicate that success and failed. Then ask, what does the length of those two lists tell us about street races? For those who don't know, Mr. Despain, bit of a poop disturber. Uh, the overarching sentiment here is, if you were indeed to document the San Jose's and the Savannah's and the Baltimore's and the Des Moines and the Tampa's and the West Palm Beaches and the Tamiami Parks and the, and the, and the, and the, and the, and, the, and you start running down the list, uh, boy, there have been an insane amount of street course failures in these good old United States of America, uh, even Canada as well, with uh, Vancouver coming to mind. Can't argue the point. It's a fact. Vast majority of street circuits fail. 
within a couple of years. Some could have a little bit of a longer runway, but for the most part, two, three years and gone. And that list of survivors, at least in our little world, it's, it's sad. No, we're doing an IndyCar show, but if we go back to the mid-1980s in IMSA, sports cars, I think it was one race over. I forget exactly. I don't have anything in front of me right now, but uh, I remember writing about this a good while ago about how in the mid-80s when street course racing really took off. Of course, Monaco had been around forever and Long Beach had been around for 10 years or whatever, but mid-80s street course racing absolutely exploded and there was i think one season of imps racing might have been 85 might have been 1986 of their whatever it was 16 17 race calendar i think it was nine races there were nine whatever the number was one more race than 50 percent were street races crazy columbus and ohio comes to mind more of these will start flying into my head as well but can't argue it dave we'll argue though i don't care (laughs) i don't care about how many have failed i'm the guy that loved the delta wing when almost every person i knew or wrote in or whatever barked at me said they hated it, it was dumb it looked it was a phallus on wheels and it was all kinds of things that were just lame and it should die and be killed with fire and i pushed back every time loved it why high ambition some totally different try it yes these things almost never pan out but like who are we (laughs) i know that there is a multinational audience listening to this show and so i'm not this is meant to be excluding anybody that isn't american but i'm just saying part of what makes us us is the yeah going to the moon not so easy in theory don't even talk about it think about it plan and just don't don't do it dump gonna fail all right yeah do it don't live life like everything's a pair of brown shoes like color (laughs) art achievement risk like yeah (sighs) try be bigger and better and be okay if you do a face plant bust your teeth out like you can live super safe wearing those comfortable little brown shoes and eating your little microwave dinner every night and just live wrapped in bubble wrap and boy that's great hey that's not me I don't think that's most of you, whether you're an American or from wherever else. Like, for the most part, uh, the coolest people that I know from any country are the ones who say, oh, yeah, it's totally crazy. We got to do it. (laughs) We got to try. And so guess what? Yeah. Hey, we're going to try and hold a motor race in a United States states of america city or canadian or mexico or wherever brazil sao paulo street race ah look it lived and it existed what a remarkable thing 
Some of them didn't quite pull off. I'm still waiting to get to, uh, what was it, Qingdao in China? That didn't happen. The Boston Grand Prix, yeah, that didn't exactly happen. But you know what? Makes for fun stories. I live for stories. I write stories. Kind of what I do. Uh, Love you, Dave. Get your point. Do not agree in any way, shape, or form with the sentiment, though. Um, Let's go do it. Uh, I think of these many, many, many failed street races as bands. Hey, all right. Not every band is long for the world. Um, Do we not try and record just because the numbers say that, yeah, you're probably going to break up after your second or third album? Or do you go and try and kick ass and make some memorable music that folks love? And, yeah, it sucks that there's no more albums coming and you only got a couple of them to really dig into and hold on to. But thanks for doing it. Uh, that's my takeaway. I'd be going to the San Jose Grand Prix right now if it was still there. I loved it. The track, eh, little rinky-dink, not great. But, man, when we were doing Evil Knievel jumps over railroad tracks, that was awesome. That was that was crazy. It was amazing. I, st- I can see it right now, right in front of my eyes, as if it was still taking place it was so visceral so everything oh my gosh uh there was some fun there's some crashes the crowd's going ah all kinds of stuff and hey i remember it remember baltimore there's so many places been to aren't still happening but man i am so much happier and better for having been there and experienced it so take that guy who's much better at his job than i am all right we're gonna go to clark haddon's hey marshall why 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 did brian barnhart not tell colton to slow down and look at the big picture championship wise oh you wrote brian b-r-i-a-n sorry i defaulted to brian barnhart his former strategist uh, instead of b-r-y-a-n his father brian herta my bad why did brian not tell colton to slow down and look at the big picture championship wise I feel they got greedy after the pit stop gift by the pace car. Yeah, this is one of those all this kid knows how to do is attack. His developmental deficit is knowing how to cruise. Would say that there was a pretty big carrot being dangled in front of him though did try to pull off something pretty big coming off the bridge with what was it two three five whatever ten laps left and saw his gap go from like six tenths of a second to erickson to like two he almost crashed uh but gathered the thing up and kept going uh and he almost crashed once or twice before that too which i saw but wasn't really mentioned during the broadcast but yeah he was trying to make up oodles of time in turn nine and if you look at the gap i think when he crashed it was cut down to i think 1.2 seconds or something so he'd made up some decent ground i hear you clark i hear you this is a great hindsight question and i'm not saying you had this question come to you in hindsight you may have been thinking it the whole time but if you think about where Colton was 
at the start of the race in the championship. Um, second place wasn't going to do a whole bunch for him. If we are talking about real championship aspirations, if he really, really, really wanted to get after things and do his best to climb into the championship frame, he was I'm just looking now 124 points behind Alex Pillow coming into Nashville. Six races left, 124 points behind. Giant deficit. Uh, while second would have given him good points, holding seventh place coming into the event. Um, looking at the gap, Seconds and thirds would get him to maybe fourth place by the end of the year. For him to get into championship contention, wins. Needs wins. The extra points for a win over second. For him, really the big difference between I'm going to be fighting for something or eh, uh, I'm not at the end of the season. And I can tell you, that kid is not wired, nor would I ever want him to be wired to be excited about, hey, I backed off a little bit, got a good second, and hey, at the end of the year, we were third in the championship. <laughs> that's not him, and that's one of the things that makes him this once-in-a-lifetime-ish type talent. We got a couple of those, right? We got... Uh, him and Pato, and again, we think there's a couple others who are going to fall into that category, but yeah. That's not something I would be asking him to do if I were Brian. So yeah, he fell back one spot. He's now 8th instead of 7th in the championship. And let's see if I can do math at 10.38 p.m. Uh, 275. Uh, yeah. So he is more or less unchanged. I mean, uh, the gap to Alex Pillow is 135 points, right? So grew, of course, a little bit, but this is a kid who's wired for going to the front and nothing else. Cannot argue the fact that, yes, there will need to be a little bit of a learning how to throttle back a tiny bit when there's a real reason to. When he's leading the championship or second, and again, the situation suggests that, okay, uh, don't murder the car as much this lap uh, or the next couple laps, and it will actually help us in our title quest. Um this was not one of those scenarios. So knowing knowing what he has achieved before, he was third in the championship last year. Uh, the super honest and simple takeaway with this, go get it all. Leave nothing. If you leave nothing, at least you can say you tried to get everything. This didn't work out. It was... 100% his own fault. I don't think it's going to end up really changing anything for him. Other than winning, eh. Um, 
being safe, brother, is not going to get him to what he needs. And finishing third again or even second, it's going to be totally unfulfilling. So it's just a mindset. This guy's a racehorse, <laughs> not a show pony. This guy is a racehorse, maximum speed. What he did up until that crash, I'm just saying, I, I'm, I'm struggling to think of such a gaudy demonstration of speed from a driver at an event uh indycar event in i don't know how long like he was playing with people like there no one else even close it's just silly and also a quick shout out here to his race engineer nathan o'rourke uh so colton crazy amazing driver all those things um he needs someone to put the good go fast setup on the car and tune it and yeah so give all the props to colton for what he did with that vehicle but hey there's a guy who kind of makes that vehicle good uh and his name's nathan o'rourke and yeah him do good work i'm gonna take another sip of water here can't really tell you why why i feel the need to announce that tonight but i'm just gonna roll with it uh glad that we have two people asking about marcus erickson's skills and maybe some of them are a little bit funny or cheeky marshall says john wojnar who is one of the leaders of the prude listener group um if you want to join that group by the way as i should have remembered to mention at the beginning of the show along with constant appreciation for cooper tires and the justice brothers and torontomotorsports.com uh this is my unpolished turd y'all sorry and i hope this doesn't come across as an excuse i'm really doing my best here like what you're getting is my best and it's not great but (sighs) one of these days i'll tell you about all the nonsense that uh, we've been dealing with and getting through at home um john wojnar says i know everyone is saying it's a big brain move to run the low downforce wing for the straights uh, as the Ganassi team did, but how about the skill of Erickson? Low downforce on in prehistoric reds, and he still kept the car straighter than a slot car around the track. It says, P.S., how do I remove the mini tattoo of you from my chest? I put on as part of the Toronto Motorsports contest at Nashville. Might be kind of awkward to have one on me with a romantic weekend with my girlfriend coming up. You know, John, one of the fine things about being young, as you are, is... Eh, you don't always see that far down the road. You kind of see what's in front of you and you do the thing. And you did the thing where you put a temporary tattoo of my running man mug on your breast um, and showed it off in a photo that you posted on the interwebs. Uh, yeah, um, I I got nothing for you, man. Uh, I'm feeling a little flavor flavors here. I can't do nothing for you, man. Uh, you chose to do it. You knew that there was nothing good that was going to come of it, and you get to pay for the repercussions with your girlfriend potentially saying, no, go scrub and clean that off of yourself. If she hasn't already said that, I assume she has, and if she hasn't, you should have known to do that. You should know better, right? You're like one of those temptation drivers. Uh, Yes, that was an epic thing to watch as we saw the... uh, the Ganassi cars going for lower downforce, making them virtually impossible to catch on the bridge. 
and then also doing their best to hold on on the uh, the slower, fiddlier portions of the track as those like Colton, who was carrying more downforce, was able to just carve them up and bring that gap back down. So, yeah. Pelot as well, Dixon as well. Uh, there, there was some fast hands required to keep the cars from doing big, bad things without that extra downforce. To your point, John, really, truly, this was, as Marcus said, he felt it was one of his best performances of his career. Everything that I saw and everything that I understand about it tells me that he is spot on. Uh, So hopefully we'll get to explore that a little bit more with him um, here in a day or two on the show. Uh, Let's see. Felix as well, at FelixMichael01 on the Twitter, says, Marshall, must be the best comeback drive in a while. Is it just me? Or is the uh, the eight-car crew, Erickson's car, uh, are they constantly pulling off alternate strategies and big drives through the field this year? Bad qualifying might force them to, but they seem to have one of the best packages in the race right now. It's funny. The early part of the year was feedback on, fire everybody on the crew. They're ruining Marcus's career and life and making mistakes and bad, bad, bad. And it's like, now it's like, Hey, throw a bad scenario at them and they're going to kick butt. So yeah, funny how uh, things change. There's just some really smart people there. Like Mike O'Gara, right? Super strategist, just smart racer deluxe. Our pal, Brad Goldberg, race engineer. That guy's as sharp as they come. Uh, Our pal, Jamie Coates, crew chief. And just everyone there is really good. Marcus, I mean, I want to give a lot of credit to the crew. Hopefully I just did. They all deserve it. The thing that jumps out here, Felix, most of all is, hey, Marcus Erickson's a gamer. I don't know if we would have said that before he came to Chip Ganassi Racing. Uh, didn't see that in his rookie stuff with uh, Aaron McLaren SP. Uh, don't know how much of that we got to see in Formula One, knowing how the vehicle dictates a driver's competitiveness. What we started to see, though, last year, second half of last season, folks like Dario Franchitti within the team saying, hey, this guy's good. And not just individual lap time and, hey, he can drive the car quickly, but just, yeah, this guy's scrappy. And he's not getting all the results to let everyone know that but it's coming coming into 21 what has he done exactly that um guy has just shown he is up for the challenge all right so qualifying sucked and we we're way back we got to do some off-brand things to maybe go forward i don't know we're gonna start off by running into the back at sebastian bourdais um i feel so bad for our french fry uh, i know someone mentions that in the next question actually um respect that's what i have for marcus i respected him beforehand but with each drive like this i know that there are some folks who are pissed and go like wait a minute no you shouldn't be able to win you know you you have a bonehead move like that you take out another guy and what like hey you shouldn't get to win i get all that as the rules are written, he can win, and he did. And it wasn't luck. Obviously, the car not 
continuing to be in orbit right now. I guess we could say that part's lucky, but it's not as if once they got the car reassembled, put a, a hashtag front nose on it, uh, served the penalty, fell to the back of the field for uh, causing that crash and such. Once they got through all that, went into creative pit strategy. Uh, they pitted right after that. I think it was Hinch and Hunter Ray and, there's some others who benefited uh, farther down the line as well. So the alternate approach, which they, with Marcus, had to take in light of the crash and then the penalty and such, like they had no choice but to go down that road. It ended up being the one that worked. But to me, there was no luck here where he just was able to drive normally, wasn't required to do anything extraordinary with speed, tire conservation, fuel saving, right? It wasn't like he just kind of farted around after uh, after the crash and, oh, hey, well, boy, something happened, everyone pitted, and I got the win. No. Uh, he had to do insane things behind the wheel to make this outcome possible, and he did. And I know that I mentioned earlier and have more than once that Colton Herta was the driver of the event, owned it, destroyed everybody, Hey, um, he was able to pull down a gap to Marcus. I know that they were on different downforce settings that made a little bit of a seesaw of where the advantage was held by which driver during the lap, but it's not as if Marcus was just prey waiting to be tackled and eaten on the Savannah. Uh, Colton got by a number of drivers charging through the field where you go, oh, okay (laughs) you are kicking ass and taking names my man and he got all the way up to second and he was able to carve into that lead a little bit and then there were times where marcus was able to stretch that lead and not just on the bridge because of low downforce but in some of the slower sections as well um huge credit he's the one guy who was able to solve the colton herta problem and if colton had kept it out of the wall would he have been able to get by marcus in those last couple of laps entirely possible but based on what we saw in the laps prior i'm not so sure and as wojnar mentioned on some fairly tired tires uh full credit to marcus erickson for throwing down huge multiple points of things that he had to do in the car to get this win, aced all of them, kept the kid who ripped the field apart from the first moment of practice on Friday, kept him behind him, didn't have to go into any trickery of blocking here and doing any right, just won on merit. Yeah, um, within all the negative stuff that happened during the race this was a big deal uh we're going to start to wind down the show get to your rants and raves and then say farewell see last couple of questiones uh our pal cassie johnston how you doing cassie um always love it when you send in questions she's uh she's a slice of awesome she says, can we all give Sebastian Borde a collective podcast family hug? Says, I feel like Seb needs a hug. I do too. I, I told him 
when we spoke last, whenever it was, when I see him, I'm going to give him a giant man bear hug and with both hands reach around and grab his hiney. I love that word. I'm going to grab his hiney and lift that guy off the ground. And it's probably going to be one of the most jarring things that's ever happened to him. He's going to feel somewhat dirty afterwards. Want to shower? Might need a few moments alone to compose himself and really figure out what just happened. But I'm going to do it. And uh, I can't tell you what those cheeks are going to feel like in my hands. But the look on his face afterwards... I hope there's someone there to capture a photo because uh, there's going to be some existential questions that man's going to have to face. So, anyways, I yeah, he he needs a hug. The thing that I wish, Cassie, and I, I mean this, this is not me just being a homer, I wish I had a private jet. I really do. Private jet and all the money that I needed to fuel it and fly it and write and so just so it could be there because I would do exactly what you mentioned. Like, hey, uh, if my wife is up for it, let's go climb on the jet. We're going to fly over to wherever, and we're going to give this person a hug. We're going to tell Colton Herter, don't worry about it, dude. Um, it happens to the best, and you're going to come back from You're going to learn from it. It's going to suck. It's not going to change. You're going to be pissed off at yourself all week long until you can get back in the car, and even then, it's still going to linger. But you're going to get better from it. You're going to remember it. The sting, the sting of throwing away a potential race win like that unnecessarily, it's going to stay with you. I wish I could get on a plane, Cassie, and just go and sit and talk with some of the drivers, team owners, whatever. Give them a hug if they need. Give them a little pep talk and just be there. So there you go. Uh, Maybe I also just want a jet. Who doesn't want a jet? A private jet. Even better. Not a public jet. Not where random people can put their heinies on things private jet i have dreams it's never gonna happen but that's okay um jj gertler he's back he says so did hinch and ryan hunter race finishes potentially do anything to help save their current jobs or has that ship sailed wonderful question jj to my knowledge would have done almost nothing um i texted hinch just saying dude i'm so happy to see you doing normal you things um which is great and um, nice reply from Hinch. As I understand, uh, the funding for Hinch to continue in that car is not there. So, as for our man, Mr. Hunter Ray, uh, I think it's been made fairly clear within the team that they're wanting to, air quote, go in a different direction. And, yeah. I would say they could win multiple races to close the year out, and I still don't think it would change anything. Uh, For James, he has great sponsors behind him that make that seat possible. I'm not saying some of them aren't staying with him and wouldn't open some potential doors. To my awareness, though, the full scope of sponsors and budget needed to pay for the car to drive it for a full season is no longer possible. Therefore, someone else will be driving that car next year. Could James find more sponsorship and potentially stay in the series? 
which is the thing that I'm currently crossing fingers and everything else hoping to happen? Yes. How realistic is that? I don't know. Have not had a chance to have that conversation with him. Ryan, um, he's known for a little while that this change is coming. There have been conversations, as I understand, of could he potentially stay part-time, ovals, Indy 500, something. I don't know where that's at. It's of the many things I'd love to have a long conversation about. I'm having to pick and choose, honestly, between the phone calls that I make and what I think I might be able to do story-wise in the average day. I really am having to prioritize that right now in light of uh, the changes that have happened recently in the home front. So I'm hoping to pose some of these questions and get answers uh, when I'm able to. Uh, But yeah, uh, everything I know, JJ, is everything that I've written in silly season stuff. And I've not heard anything to lead me to believe that uh, the ship is returning to port for them to hop on and have fun with. Mark Pesky says, Cody Ware and Jimmy Johnson were parked for what seemed like, well, reasons more NASCAR than IndyCar. Ganassi working on a car under the red flag. Ware too slow, even though he had uh, been safely in the top 10. Parked to avoid future yellows? Or am I being too suspicious? Yeah, the Ganassi one struck me as a little bit odd. The rules are really straightforward. And... They are written down, like not like, hey, I think the rule, like, no, it's actually written down. Can't work in the car under a red flag, uh, period. In some racing series, there's been a penalty attached to that in the past that is not final. Hey, if you, an Indy car used to have this. If you work on the car, during a red, you incur an X lap penalty, or it could be what whatever. Seem to recall Pocono, like the last time we were at Pocono, whatever that was, three, four, five, however many years ago. Um, that was a thing there. I think it was the Andretti team where they, because they're smart, read the rule book and said, hey, there's a X lap penalty, I think it was, for working on the car into red. We'll gladly do it. Because if we waited till the red was rescinded and then started the work, we'd lose, you know, whatever it is, 10 times the amount of laps trying to repair the cars. So IndyCar said, okay, well, maybe we didn't think that one all the way through. <laughs> it really wasn't what we had in mind. Uh, we don't want you working on the car into red. So if you do it, you can't play anymore. And... Yet again, a question I've had a chance to ask, but was there a confusion of, oh, we thought that we would pay a penalty for this, uh, but we could keep going again? Well, indeed, no. IndyCar closed that loophole that they previously allowed and said, nope, you you touch it, (laughs) you take off a piece of bodywork, you do anything, uh, you are disqualified. On the Cody Ware Front Now, that is one where I've been meaning to look this up for my uh, cool-down lap. And so I'm going to do that right now. 
It's going to take a minute or two. So uh, I'm going to make a marker and edit out the dead space, uh, even though this is my unpolished turd and I leave in all my mistakes. This isn't a mistake. I just hadn't gotten to this part yet. So uh, let me go find out the information that I need, and then I'm going to come back and hopefully answer it and not sound like a total idiot. Well, the numbers don't lie. If you take a look at Cody's best lap of the race, that was set during what I think was the longest stretch of green, just about the longest stretch of green we had from lap 57 to 74. Uh, Cody's best, he happened to do that on lap 62. So this was about five laps after returning to green. Best lap of the entire race, 1 minute 19.2. If it's easier to lump it just together, uh, you could say 79.2 seconds. If you look at the race leader at that point, I believe that was Marcus. Uh, let me double check here. Yeah, that was our man, Marcus. Uh, if you look at Erickson's fastest lap in that general period, it was also his best of the race. He did that on lap 67. So five laps after Cody, Marcus set his best. At a 116.6. So difference between 79.2 seconds as Cody's best and 2.6 seconds faster when Marcus set his best at 76.6 seconds. So on the surface, you might go, whoa, that's not a huge amount. 2.6 seconds, that's not enough to black flag someone for not being fast enough. The difference here, and this is where I'm having to do the dreadful assume and make an ass out of myself and me, um, I'm assuming here, but if you look at Marcus's laps coming out of that yellow, um, lap 56, final lap of yellow, it's just a short one, going green, uh, lap 57, everyone's obviously a little bit slower because it's uh, not everyone at full speed that lap. But if you use Marcus as the benchmark, and that's how these things happen, right? It's a driver's speed, if it's in question, compared to the leader, the fastest driver. Uh, Marcus gets into 118s right away, spends two laps in the 118s after that yellow, um, then dips down into the 17s. High 116.9, then a 17.1, and then it's pretty much a full diet of 1 minute 16 second laps. Uh, 16.8, 16.9, 0.7, 0.6. We can see there's great consistency here. Super low 1 minute 17 to medium to high 116, and he's doing that lap after lap after lap. If we scroll up and find Cody's uh, output during that time. So come out of that yellow. Uh, he's first couple of laps, 121, 119, 118. That 118.2 uh, happens to be his best. And then it's back up to 120s, 120s, 19s, 19s, 18s, 19s, uh, floats back up, uh, and I'm actually reading you the wrong person because I'm an idiot, so I apologize. Uh, <laughs> I won't tell you whose laptops I was reading. 
I'm just going to leave it in. Uh, no, I'm not going to edit it. I'm a total moron. Um, okay, let's do this again. This is getting late, y'all. I'm sorry. It's truly, it's 11.15 p.m. now. Um, coming out of that yellow, Cody's competitive, first competitive laps are in the 120s, high 120s, comes down to 119s. Uh, he does have that 119.2 is his best on lap 62, but then it comes back up to 120s, then into the 121s, high 120s again, higher 121s, 121.7, right? Um, yeah, so even though if we're talking outright best laps, which were set pretty close to each other between the race leader and Cody, and they're not being that big of a gap. If you look at where they settled in pace-wise, Marcus is running four to five seconds a lap faster than Cody. And usually there's a, you must be running within 110% of the leader. I won't waste your time or mine by going off again and pausing and doing the calculation. But on a street course, that without a doubt is super challenging and has some areas that, if you're not super experienced or crazy talented, can lead to calamity. I was not unimpressed with Cody's efforts. I really wasn't. I thought what he was able to do was right in line with what he should have been able to do as a guy with almost no IndyCar experience, never done a street course, yada, like the, the bite you in the butt faster than any other street course type street course as well at Nashville. He performed how I expected, and that's not a criticism. Like, I I don't know what more I would have expected him to do. I don't think Cody is going to bother most IndyCar drivers on road and street courses, okay? I mean, just saying. Uh, some drivers are better in some arenas than others. I think he can be capable, competent, fit in. This is a track due to his inexperience and also maybe not being you know, one of the all-time greats of road and street course racing, I think just fully reflected where he's at in his driving education. I can see how IndyCar might have kept him on a bit of a short leash, knowing that he did spin on his own um, at a place where, not saying folks didn't have some sideways moments throughout the weekend, but yeah, um, I can see how they would, after that spin, unforced error i can see how indycar might have sent a message saying yep uh this is now going to be on you to prove to us that you deserve to stay in the race and if we look at a guy who's running four to five seconds off per lap on a two point what two mile circuit you know if we're talking four to five seconds on a big four mile track you might go okay that, that's while the number's still big uh, at least it's a long track so you can see where a lot of time would be lost. This is one of those places where you go, okay, it's actually a big deficit on not too long of a track. I can see how coming out of that spin, how they would have said, all right, short leash, and when those lap times started creeping up out of the 19s up into the 20s consistently, um, and then up into the 21s and then high 21. I think that's where IndyCar likely said, okay, uh, we're going to stop this prematurely. If the race had been without a 
bunch of crazy yellows, do I think they would have applied that same scrutiny? I do not. But yeah, circumstantially, it sure seems like justification to do that. All right, let's get into uh, Justin Holmes. Mentioned, hey, if you're Roger Penske or Tim Sindrick, how do you approach your conversation with Will Power? What are your thoughts on Penske's weekend as a whole? Yeah, that was a bad weekend. Uh, Joseph, not great weekend. Obviously, error in qualifying, seriously stifling his potential. Pretty crazy rebounding. Uh, boy, this could have gone very bad for them, and I think they salvaged a fairly decent result knowing what it was. Um, Pagano, once again, looked like he was on to something okay. Not He was never going to win the race, but he was, you know, would have been in the conversation for a decent finish. I don't think Power looks at him with the same worry or threat that he might have years ago. Uh, I think Power looks at him as someone who, on the average weekend, is taking fewer risks, and therefore willpower at fault for what happened. Um, It's one of those temptation things that we discussed, all yada, yada, yada. I got to put it on Will. Like I said, if not for that move, we don't have that 11-car problem. But I can put myself into his mindset and say that if that was Scott Dixon, would he have tried that? No, I don't think he would. If that was Colton Herta, if that was Pato Award, if that was New Garden, he does not try that. The fact that that was Will Power, jeez, the fact that that was Simon Pagano, that Will Power viewed, assessed, and said, eh. Um, the fact that there's a pretty common belief that he's not going to be in the team next year. I think you throw some of those things around, Justin. I think you, none of these excuse anything. That's not what we're trying to do here. I just want you to understand what I believe to be Will's general view as to why he did what he did. If that's some of the other drivers that I mentioned, ones that he he doesn't fear anybody, but truly respects like a, oh yeah, you're a badass. If I'm going to win, I got to, do some really amazing work to get past you, uh, but I'm going to race you as clean as can be. I don't know if he views Pagano that way anymore, and I don't think it just happened at Nashville. I think, and his quotes after the race where Pagano wasn't even mentioned, he apologized for the contact with his teammate Scott McLaughlin. He had nothing to say about Pagano. Again, that's what that's those little windows into things, right? Where you go, oh, uh, you could have said you could have done three things: could have blamed the guy, you could have taken responsibility, or you could have said nothing. Uh, he said nothing about Pagano in his post-race comments to his team that were published. He did take a moment, though, or he did uh, take time, spent half of his quote apologizing to mclaughlin for what happened uh 
Sometimes it's the things they don't say that tell you the most about what they're thinking. So, yeah. Uh, back to the RP or Cindric. What do you do? Hi, guy who's amazing and one of the greats of his generation, who is also known for being a little bit like Australia's Mr. Bean and making some mistakes that are, you know, maybe perfect for memes, but not necessarily funny within the team. Rhyming. Um... I don't know what you say other than, dude, we got one guy in the team with the potential for winning the championship. His name is Joseph Newgarden. Five races left. Everything you do going forward, William Jehoshaphat Power, is to help your teammate. Not hit, but help your teammate. And your other teammates, if they're in positions to strengthen Joseph's potential for winning a championship. Everything you do going forward this season is to get Joseph as close to his third championship with us as possible. Anything less than that, and we're going to have some serious repercussions. So Joseph, still fourth in the championship, Still capable of bridging that gap to below 75 points right now. It's it's a real gap, but it's not insurmountable over these last five races. Uh, if you think about what it was coming into the event, what? Uh, yeah, what was it? 70 points, I think. Um, 69 points to below, so it... Thankfully, Plo, from Newgarden's perspective, didn't have a great day. So the potential damage to his title bid uh, was not vast. But yes, I don't know what you say to Will to make him change who he is at 40 years old. And, you know, he is who he is. That's not changing. But, boy, a verbal whipping from a RP or TC... Uh, I think that can only help get his head to where it needs to be, which is brother man, brother man, brother man. Uh, Hey, where are you in the championship coming into the race? Willpower, where are you? What do you have to 11th in the standings? Uh, you know, not too far from 200 points behind the leader. It ain't happening. Brother man. Um, Big picture is now being visited upon you by your bosses. All right. Speaking of bosses, uh, we are where are we going here? We're going to the closer. This is just strictly y'all. What you have to say about this Nashville event. I'm just reading it. I'm not opining on it. I might offer something snarky if anything makes me snark, but let me take a final sip of uh, alkaline 8.8 smooth hydration purified water. Chad Higley. Am I remembering questions from you before, Chad? If not, thanks for sending in your first. And if you did and I didn't notice it, well, you know, I'm an idiot. He says to start off the rant or the rave. He's on the rant side. Chad says complete junk. <laughs> 
if Nashville is where we need to be, according to the top brass of the series, then Nashville Speedway needs to be the home. The series needs more ovals. Tom Harleman, how you doing, Tom? Uh, he's he's going to wage the counterpoint. says, I know there will be a lot of negative thoughts. However, this race and the intrigue was actually very interesting. Let's think of how the race may have gone. Hurdle laps the field up to fifth place. No passing and the announcers spending two hours coming up with something to say. Yes, a lot of sloppy driving from people like Will Power. Uh, but honestly, in this race, he had no idea what was going to happen. And then Herta's charge at the end was awesome driving. So before the negative thought mongers take over the comments, think of it in a different way, says Tom. It could have been a boring race, and the IndyCar faithful would have complained about that too. I, for one, thought it at least was interesting he had no idea what was going to take place. Says he's an IndyCar fan since 1981. All right, we're going in the opposite direction. Our man Mike DiCardo, who's very excellent at finding negativity in the world, says the race was a poop show, but it seems uh, agreed that the event was indeed a success. Does IndyCar care what we race purists think? If they deem it a success, I'd ask a second question about the lack of any COVID precautions. There you go, Mike. I knew there was going to be uh, something else in there. Uh, COVID precautions, but the show will already be three hours long. MP, you have my full empathy this week. Thank you, Brother Mike. You know, I try and bring the positivity, and uh, you you often try and keep me honest with uh, counterpoints there, Mike. So good to you. Uh, Sarah Morell, Sarah, you st- I still got a reply to a DM that you sent that I know is sitting there staring at me. I apologize. A <sighs> number of you have responses awaiting from me, and I apologize. Um, one of these days, I'm going to tell myself I'm going to get better at that, and yeah, that's not going to happen. Sarah Morell, she is awesome. She is half of the Prude Power couple, Sarah Maya, she and her husband, Jeremiah. So it's more of a comment than a question, but this was possibly one of the greatest weekends for the Prude members in attendance. Was everything exactly as advertised? No. There were problems with it being the inaugural running. First time for it, there will be some problems. We did get up to the top of the stadium ramps with our Prude credentials on Saturday. Uh, said great views from the top and of course time spent with amazing people it was good to see jason hatfield nick vance nick hollinger shannon mcbride and make new friends at the track Derek Koska and roger warwick brought the best merchandise available from toronto motorsports and even brought some stickers temporary tattoos and guitar picks that were pretty awesome she closes by saying, thank you, MP, for helping create an amazing community of fans. All right, well, I'll insert this here. It's kind of you to say that, Sarah, but y'all have come together. I didn't put y'all together. Y'all have come together. So thank you to you because that's you. And as I mentioned earlier, if you want to join the Prude, I'm not involved in it. I'm not, I'm not a member of my own listener group, nor do I want to be, nor should I be. That's y'all's. Um, send me a note. Uh, email MySpace, whatever, Carrier Pigeon. Reach out to me on uh, social medias, and I'll get you connected. Or you could just uh, visit 
Try and find Ryan Terpstra, uh, Matt Philpot, John Wojnar on uh, the Twitters or the Instagrams or the Facebooks. There are plenty of folks. Jason mentioned here. Chris Ward is one. Uh, you name it. Lots of folks who uh, come together and have fun as the uh, the Pruday listener group. So, yeah, really appreciate your note here, Sarah, and appreciate you and that husband of yours. Not so bad. All right, uh, where are we going? Well, that'd be the opposite direction. Cody Oakwood. How you doing, Cody? Uh, he says, MP, I know a lot of mistakes from this weekend on and off the track can be forgiven with the it was our first time excuse. But this wasn't the first race in IndyCar history, and it wasn't the first street race in IndyCar history. Where is the line where hashtag you personally believe the quote, First-time excuses have to stop, and IndyCar just has to admit they screwed up. All right, well, there is a little bit of a question there, so uh, why don't we address that quickly? There's a... It's a bit of a, a chef and diner dynamic here when it comes to IndyCar in the events on its calendar where they don't own it. It's put on by a promoter. They have big legal agreements with a million pages of all kinds of everything going on. And IndyCar certainly has the final word on all the really important things, mostly on the competition side. But it's still a case where it's not the Indianapolis Motor Speedway. Uh it's not named something else that they either own or have been fully in charge of. It's a case of, hey, this restaurant we're going to is amazing, and we've given our order and exactly what we want the chef to prepare for us. We have full faith that we're going to get it exactly as we asked for and as promised, but we are not the ones in charge of this. And so what shows up on the plate from the chef could indeed, I said, no pickles, <laughs> no pickles. And there's pickles on the plate. You go, oh, and hey, and on and on and on. There's a weird line here, Cody. And I, 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 I don't ever want to be in the middle of it because I think it'd drive me mad because I can point out problems all day long. And I think it would never end, and it would make for really bad relationships uh, if I was the series uh, having to go to the promoter saying, hey, here's all the things, and if you don't fix them right now, we're not going to have a race, or the race is going to suck. And who are the fans going to blame? Well, the vast majority don't know that there's a, quote, promoter or someone else in charge. They think of, hey, you're the headliner, you're the act we've come to see, and if things suck, well you're to blame um so there's a bit of reliance here cody that's just strange and awkward and filled full of hope that the chef cooks up everything they said they would exactly how you want it and inevitably for a new street course race a new race anywhere there's going to be deficiencies was thinking back to baltimore and I don't remember exactly when the first IndyCar practice was due to start, but I do remember that Friday standing on the track at the railroad tracks 
trying to have a conversation with Brian Barnhart as, as they were attempting to shape a cement chicane that they just came up with on their own to try and slow down the car so they didn't break themselves in half going over the railroad tracks. And however many hours late the event got started, it was all because, yeah, we've had a lot of time to do this, and we've tried to game plan everything. Boy, yeah, I guess we kind of missed this one. Um, Clearly they missed a number of things in terms of the high expectations that the average IndyCar fan has. Uh, I will super fall in line with the let's cut them some slack. I know you said the first time excuses. Where does it stop? Cut them some slack. Say, yeah, uh, they did need to experience some of the, the mistakes and the, the bad decisions, and they're going to need to react to that. I can't, as I mentioned, open the show, blame a lot of stuff in terms of track layout. Right, We know that some things can be improved and this, that, and the other, but it's not like it's a road course where they can just say, well, cool, we're going to knock down those trees, remove that hill, and we're just going to pave a new section and make that however we want it. There are great limitations to how much creativity can be had with the street course. So we'll see if and what can change there. I would say the things that stand out most of all would be things like not getting a grandstand done. And I realize that there's some issues there with the vendor, and I get all that, but it's stuff like that that everybody can see, right? This isn't some kind of hidden towards the back of the venue, and yeah, hey, we got a big problem here, but not a lot of people can see it. This is the, hey, that's not done. Like, we're at a, the event's taking place, and that's not finished, uh, it's stuff like that where it's hard to say first time. Um, did you have a backup vendor? When was the point in time you understood that there were issues? What were you able to do? What weren't you able to do? What contingencies were in place? Um, the bumpiness. We knew it was going to be bumpy based on the simulation, right? All the drivers that had been in driving the loop sim said yeah okay this is going to be rough um were there things that could have been done beforehand there probably uh not everywhere as we discussed but sometimes you have to see the problem let me rephrase that for some folks they need to have the problem become real before they're willing to either acknowledge it or act on it It felt like there were a couple of those, Cody. Not a ton, but a couple of those where you go, all right, I can't really pin that on. Well, it was your first time. So the list of things to do better for next year, it's long. But I think it's going to be good. Um, Three to go, and then we're done. Uh, This is our longest submission here from our pal Brian Burrell. MP, hate to hear about your wife's continued battle with cancer, then for Robin Miller, and now Bob Jenkins. Says all of it sucks. And just let uh, let everyone know that we're all thinking about all of you. It's really sweet, Brian. Says, okay, my boots to the ground. And if you didn't go and spend your money, don't complain or have comments about those that did. Awesome venue. It says you go over a pedestrian bridge and boom, 
You're in a bar in Entertainment City. Bands start every day at 10 a.m., and everyone I heard, they were amazing. Great vibe and energy. Talked to a lot of newbies. Most were positive. Uh, one of the listeners here, by the way, mentioned uh, they had to educate someone that they were indeed, this is not a joke, not at a Formula One race. <laughs> so there you go. That would have been great. Hey, I thought we were in the summer break in F1. Nope. There's a new world championship round in Nashville. Says, uh, Brian goes on to say, if you asked if the race has always had that many wrecks, so saw some young fans that traveled uh, in from out of state, all decked out in IndyCar gear, and brought some new friends with them. Says, there is hope. Says, now for the longtime fans, it was pricey. You can only bring in a bottle of water. Most prices were 10 to $11 per beer. Says, two beers with tax and tip is apparently $25.36 since several are showing on my credit card today. I love you, Brian. Parking was about $30 each day, or we stayed about three miles away, and an Uber was 10 to 12 bucks each way, except after the race. It says $40 immediately for the surge, and about 21 after 10 p.m. It says clearly the prices aren't stopping Nashville. The town is busy. I don't think there's any shortage of fans, as you would see some coming in just for concerts as we were leaving each night. And as long as that festival atmosphere continues, it could be the Long Beach of the Midwest. I thought it was the South. All right. Uh, and friendliest driver we interacted with this weekend goes to Takuma Sato. Well, that's never going to be an argument. Truly one of the, the nicest human beings you're ever going to meet. It's great feedback here, by the way. Um, yeah, this lines up with a lot of what I heard. Uh, when you have a first-time promoter, for sure, they're always going to go high uh, on costs. I realize that by that, what I mean is what they're charging the vendors is high. So the vendors who pay money to go there and sell whatever, T-shirts, hats, beer, food, whatever, yeah, that gets passed on to you the uh the racing fan it's often hard to see that reversed like if you start high it rarely ever goes low but yeah um i don't know you can see this having potential to be a thing that i can tell you um i don't think any other form of racing would really suit the streets so i think there's a real indycar thing a real indycar vibe here that could be unique um i know it's south I know that NASCAR is probably what would come to mind as maybe the best fit for Nashville, but you know everything that I read, everything that I saw from a video standpoint or whatever else, um, it really did come across like there was genuine appreciation that something new and different was in town, and Nashville's reputation has not always been about new and different. It is now. That's what it's known for. But it wasn't always that way. So I just think that a challenger brand like IndyCar compared to kind of an old-timey, everyone-knows-what-NASCAR-is type thing, I think it's just a good fit. And there's so many things that can be buttoned up and cleaned up here for uh, for the future. That can be done. All right, two to go. Daniel Summerskill says, would you consider Nashville 
uh, a success. It says, hashtag me personally would say it definitely was. Big crowds every day. Look great on TV. The race itself had issues, but they're certainly fixable. Uh, the fact that spectators stayed to the end despite endless cautions showed their enthusiasm. Absolutely a success. You know, the, the thing we went there for, yeah, uh, it wasn't all the awesome that it could be, as we know. But yes, the, the energy and passion to go back and for it to be better, that tells me, yes, let's do this. Uh, I remember distinctly hearing from drivers, photographers, mechanics, and engineers after IndyCar's one and done ill-fated trip to NOLA, New Orleans Motorsports Park, or whatever the hell they called it. And yeah, I realized that there was torrential rain and some other things that made it suck, but there was not one drop of passion from anybody that I spoke with Daniel. I, I missed it, thankfully. I was, that was what, 2015? I was in England covering the FI World Endurance Championship opener at Silverstone. So I got to miss it. Uh, and then flew back, and the following weekend was Long Beach. And so I showed up jet lagged, but happy, uh, coming off of a great race there. Uh, also watched, I think I watched it in the hotel um, that night, the, the, nola race and it was garbage uh the track was featureless everything i mean there's nothing that looked pleasing to the eye uh and then i i mean so watching it it was just kind of a dull like uh, okay then speaking with everybody after the event it was parking was a nightmare Everything was pure mud, and, you, I mean, just name everything that you take for granted for being easy at a motor racing event, and seemingly every single thing was a pain in the backside. And so coming out of it, this inaugural, hey, we're racing in New Orleans, party town, right? Hey, it's more southern Nashville, right? Hey, we're in Nolan. Imagine what this could be and Mardi Gras and all the promos that were done and right. And not a single person wanted to go back. So we've seen what these are like when everyone realizes it certainly isn't fixable. This is certainly fixable. So I haven't seen what the TV ratings are. I hope they're okay. Um, I hope we didn't piss off too many people who showed up. Uh, I hope the biggest hope that I have between now and next year's race, Daniel, is however many first-time IndyCar race attendees go and visit racer.com and you name whatever other site.com and get stuck in as real fans. I hope that of the tens of thousands of people who turned up, not the uh, Brian Burrells and the Sarah Morells and hey, I'm rhyming again, um, not the hardcore fans, but the actual first-timers are somewhat newbies. I hope that we gain them as real fans who start following along 
And whether it's reading, whether it's listening, watching, whatever, boy, I really do hope that this weekend's IndyCar, whatever, drink, booze, Grand Prix, whatever it's called, uh, I really hope that of however many people end up watching it, that a nice little bump is from folks who went to Nashville and said, this is my thing, this is my jam. I'm going to start following this for real. Uh, last item here, our pal Amanda Bauer. Amanda, by the way, I genuinely enjoy your Twitter activity, uh, whether it is funny or poignant or somehow both. Uh, when I see tweets or responses come in from you, usually there's a good little chuckle or something that follows. Uh, she closes the show by saying, I thought previously about volunteering to compile your questions. Now, feeling very sorry for that person this week. That's our man, Jim Kaiser. Uh, yes, uh, Jim is a blessing to us. He really is. Um, yeah, so smart call, Amanda. Uh, <laughs> yet again, you have uh, you've sussed this one out perfectly. Uh, thanks to Jim. Seriously, he's uh, split this into two. So I here at 11.48 p.m., I'm going to say farewell so I can get this posted. So hopefully when y'all are waking up or whatever, you'll have a, a dumb podcast and some stuff to uh, hopefully do some bench racing over. Maybe do that with uh, members of the Prue Day or just your family and friends. And then I'm hoping tomorrow, and I can only say that for, what, 12 more minutes. Um, I'm hoping that on Tuesday I will get part two done. And then we will speak to our man, Mr. Marcus Erickson, on Wednesday. And in theory, should have mentioned this up front, uh, in theory, I will get to go to an actual organized motor racing event for the first time in a long time this weekend. Uh, Friday through Sunday is the annual Rolex Monterey Motorsports Reunion, once known as the Monterey Historics Vintage Event. I have covered this instead of whatever it was happening that weekend in pro racing, IndyCar, IMSA, ALMS, whatever. I've covered this event. It's local to me in Monterey. I don't know. Um, last year they didn't have it because of the pandemic, but I think I've covered this dating back to the late 2000s. So I don't know, uh, 10, 12 years, something like that. Uh, I was supposed to go down last weekend to the prehistorics. Uh, unfortunately, with uh, the development on the home front and some very, I don't know how you deal with it, type side effects that my wife uh, was experiencing, um, absolutely uh, pulled the uh, ripcord and the parachute came out. And uh, instead of going down and farting around uh, on Saturday at Monterey to capture some video and some other stuff, uh, pulled the old ripcord there and said, nope, need to stay home and um, look after my girl. So that's what I did. So hopefully, uh, barring any other surprises, I'm actually going to not have any involvement covering Friday and Saturday's Indy Grand Prix. Um, hopefully I'll be down in Monterey capturing in-car video and making some videos and some photos and just celebrating vintage motor racing vehicle and uh, if those plans work, I will also get to see young Mr. Robert Rahal on Sunday, who's meant to fly in after Indy 
so that he can drive his brand newly restored 1968 Eagle IndyCar. So, anyways, thanks to y'all. Thanks to TorontoMotorsports.com. Absolutely massive thank you to Cooper Tires and all they do for me, for us, for the road to Indy. And then the Justice Brothers just being pillars in my adult life. Going to be back with you for part two of the Weekend IndyCar Listener Q&A powered by your many questions. <laughs>